Bryn. I'm Chris. This and is PH. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> we're going to leave that in, though. Can you tell we're drinking rum? Right. It's, this is our sixth drink. No. Fifth. I mean, maybe. All right. <laughs> Cheers, dear readers. I'm Bryn. No. <laughs> no, you're not Bryn. No. You're Bryn. I'm Bryn. And I'm Chris. And this is it's PH, PH Drunk. Drug. PH Drunk is our weekly-ish podcast where we drink to excess and discuss classic works of literature. Maybe we had a little much excess this time. <laughs> Never too much. Never too much excess. <laughs> it's our motto. Uh, what were we... Oh, wait. Ellis is on sabbatical. Yes. Ellis is... Fuck me, really are doing Okay. Ellis is on sabbatical doing real shit, but we're holding down the fort for her. In today's episode, we are discussing Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, and Jane Eyre is an extremely famous work of Victorian literature that was published, and I'm looking it up right now because I didn't do it before. 1847. It was published in 1847, and Charlotte Bronte uh, is the author. author. She is the sister of Emily and Anne Bronte. Um, she is the most famous of them, and Jane Eyre is probably the most famous of her novels. And by probably, I mean absolutely, definitely. definitely. It was like... Although Villette is better. Come at me. Yes. No, Villette is better. I still have problems. Oh, Charlotte Bronte is my least favorite Bronte. She's interesting. Oh, God. By a long shot. Least favorite Bronte. Ooh, I don't know. Emily might be my least favorite. It's a toss-up between Emily and Charlotte. Fun fact, when did Queen Victoria take the throne? 37. 1837. Don't worry, Chris knows. Oh, Chris knows. Chris <laughs> Chris has a, a like, pin-cushion Queen Victoria who watches over her dissertation to make sure that it is You're accurate. You're so fancy. Like she's you. beautiful. Like, you can't see her because she's turned around right now, but she, like, watches. Is she she's mad at you? Probably. I haven't <laughs> dissertated in a few days. <laughs> um, all right. So, I'm going to do the super fast, tiny plot summary for our first segment. I'm so ready. Okay. There's so much to get into. Jane Eyre is the titular character of Bronte's novel. She is an orphan who lives with her horrible Aunt Reed and her bratty cousins, and they send her off to Lowood, a school that is pretty much like a prison, and her friend dies, and she becomes a teacher at Lowood, and then she goes off to be a governess at Thornfield Manor. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane falls in love with the mysterious Mr. Rochester, who is the owner of Thornfield, but on the eve of their wedding, she finds out that he has a attic, attic wife. wife! I do like a good attic wife. We all do. Rochester wants Jane to be his mistress, uh, but she says no way and goes off to sleep in the moors because she is pure and she has noble feelings and must commune with nature. She's got to sleep outside in the rain and nearly starve to death because she's so good. Yes. After she gets her own money, she goes back, finds a blind and mangled and recently single Rochester, and dear reader, she marries him. No. Um, actually, the, uh, the name the name we have for you guys, our dear readers, comes from... Jane Eyre, and the extremely famous line, Dear Reader, I Married Him. So, today, we are drinking a beverage called The Attic Wife. We made it up. We make up a lot of things. (laughs) We're making stuff up. It's got 
Jamaican ginger oh, beer. Oh, excuse me. I'm so sorry. I specifically asked for Jamaican ginger beer because Bertha Mason, yes. the attic wife, is from Jamaica. Yes. And it has limes because limes are delicious. And it has rum because rum is a very Caribbean liquor, the Caribbean liquor. And it also has bitters because attic wives are bitter. Can't have an attic wife without bitters. you got to have bitters in your Can't attic wives. Can't have an attic wife without bitters. It's pretty good if I say so myself. It's not, not terrible. I'm, I'm enjoying it's it. It's not terrible? I'm enjoying it. This is what you give me to work with? <laughs> Jesus Christ. You're welcome. Let's move on. Segment two. Themes for days. Themes on themes on themes. I like it. You did a good job. You're welcome. Okay. Which one are we going to start with? Do you want There's to talk so about, many themes. Do you want to talk about Byronic heroes and toxic masculinity or masochism? They're very interrelated. Let's start with Byronic heroes and toxic masculinity. First of all, we should probably tell people what a Byronic hero is. Would you like to do that? Yes. Quick summary version. A Byronic hero is based on the poetry of a certain Lord Byron, um, who was, like, hysterically funny, but also kind of a shit human. Um, we love him. We yeah. really do. He, he was, was a shit human, yeah. but we really like he him. He was described as a woman he may or may not have had an affair with as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. Definitely he, had an affair with her. Yeah. Absolutely had. <laughs> he he mostly slept with anything or anyone that would look twice at him. Like, literally um, anyone. A lot of people. Queer! We are here for queer. I mean, I'm so ready for it. But he was always in danger of being... In trouble for his many sexual exploits. Um, spent a good amount of time in Italy, where that is not such a danger of being persecuted for such sexual exploits. Um, and he created his most famous Byronic hero is Don Juan. It's spelled Don Juan. I appreciate that that's not the way we're supposed to pronounce it. Um, you have to pronounce it Don Juan to get the rhyme scheme of his poem. That's the way that the British people would have bastardized such a name, um, and that's the way it fits into the rhyme scheme of the poem, and so it's still called that in poetry. Anyway, the Byronic hero is usually someone that you, that maybe you don't want to root for, but you end up kind of appreciating them anyway. Usually they're sexually promiscuous, they're engaged in things that perhaps they should not be engaged in. Um, morally questionable. Morally questionable in many aspects of their life. Um, however, at the end of it, you still somehow think that maybe it could be okay that things work out for them. Yes. I just felt this attic wife hit my stomach like a ton of bricks. Yes. <laughs> I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this podcast episode. So who is our Byronic hero? Um, before we get into Mr. Rochester, do we have any ex like notable examples of literature of Byronic heroes? I have a few. Great. Let's do it. What's our... Um, Edward Cullen from Twilight. That's a Byronic yes. hero. Oh um, What's-his-face from Fifty Shades of Grey? Byronic mm -hmm. hero. Um, who else? Well, Mr. Rochester. Mr. Rochester. Heathcliff from Emily Bronte's Withering Heights. Maybe. Oh, my God. A hundred percent. Well, he doesn't sleep with anything that moves. Yes. He's there for Kathy. But, oh, Kathy. yeah. Kathy! Well... It, Okay, but the, it's a sleep. <laughs> but he's he doesn't sleep with anything that moves, but he exhibits all of the other traits of Byronic hero. And I would say that sleeping okay. with anything that moves is only part of the. Not it's true, but no. to Lord Byron, it was the most important. Yeah, <laughs> I, honestly, I don't think I I 
would disagree that Don, I'm also cutting this because I'm going to leave it in, but I don't think Don Juan is the most Byronic of Byronic heroes. I think Manfred is probably the most Byronic of Byronic Interesting. heroes. Interesting. Yeah. Don Juan is most likely to be read in a survey literature course. That's well, because always... Don Juan is a brilliant work of literature. It's but... so great. He, like, gets stranded on a beach and meets a beautiful girl, even though he's trying the... to marry another okay. beautiful girl. And he's because... like, oh, no, I'm here. Okay, actually, actually, I think I'm going to leave this in. Because <laughs> I don't think it's Don Juan, because Don Juan is, like, hilarious and great. And, like, the I think the central characteristic of a Byronic hero is that they need to be troubled. But Lord Byron enjoyed that sense of humor. Like he, no, he, sure, Byron loved really him. But the idea of a Byronic hero isn't something that Byron did on purpose. the The idea of a Byronic hero is like that troubled soul that we can I think fix. Your troubled soul could be a funny troubled soul. Yes, I just don't think that Don Juan is the most troubled soul in Byron's. He, but he's like a funny troubled. I don't see him. He, he just sleeps with a woman and says, "I'm going to marry you." Hold on, let me go make a fortune. There's no dragon, Don Juan. Don Juan is literally just meant to be, like, a hilarious fuckboy. And that's not what I think of when I think of her. And yet you still somehow think it could be okay if it worked out for him in the end. I just think that you need to be, like, really dark and troubled to be a true Byronic hero. Maybe. Byron was himself dark Dark and troubled. Dark and troubled, yes. Also also hilarious. He was fun. I wish someone would describe me as mad, bad, and terrible to know. Or dangerous. Mad, bad, and dangerous to know. I wish someone would describe me as mad, bad, and dangerous to know. If you'd like, I can describe you that way. Thank (laughs) you. I'm going to get that tattooed on my body. Somewhere really inappropriate. Okay, so let's talk about the quintessential Byronic hero and his extremely toxic masculinity, Mr. Rochester. I know. I have so many words, so many thoughts, so many feelings. And I, I didn't always think he was toxic, though. That's a fair okay. point. Can you remember the first time that you read Jane Eyre? When's the first time everybody reads Jane Eyre? In high school. In high school. And I okay. loved this shit. I have to tell you, I brought my high school copy of Jane Eyre. She's the real hero. Um, because apparently I still have it. I'm a book hoarder. <laughs> and can I tell you some of the shit I underline in this thing? It's all of the most overwrought, romanticized, like, it brought to life and life my whole nature. In his presence, I thoroughly lived, and he lived in mine. I mean, I underline this, <sighs> like, horrible, horrible, overwrought, emotional, disgusting language. <laughs> I thought it was so romantic. I, Jane Eyre and Rochester end up together, and it's such a sweet love story. I was, like, between the ages of, like, 12 and 14 when I first read Jane Eyre and I swear to god I thought it was the most romantic thing ever so romantic I was like oh my god Jane and Rochester they love each other so much they go through so much to be together it's wonderful as an adult reading this I am like this is some motherfucking bullshit and we need to stop this right in its tracks and Charlotte Bronte you need to go to therapy it is there was a stage there was a stage in the middle where I thought, well, it has some problems, but it's still a good love story. Because I thought, well, why does Jane have to go through all of the crap she has to go through just to get to marry this man? And why does he have to be burned in order to marry her? And now like, in our, that's problematic. In our, in our middle age, we think, why the fuck does Jane Eyre have to go through all of this bullshit to marry this piece of shit? And why is the worst that he gets off with being... <laughs> Burnt and blended because you it's a novel. You spend so much time on it. It's a yes. novel. 
Um, okay, so let me give you some background on Mr. Rochester. Excellent. Mr. Rochester is the second son of a uh, wealthy family, but he was not going to inherit a fortune because his older brother was because of the law of primogenitor, which means that the eldest son may, uh, inherits everything. Anyway, Mr. Rochester is the second son, and so they send him to Jamaica to earn his fortune um, by managing the family properties there aka slave plantations because that is literally how everybody in britain who was rich made their fortunes like at me if you feel like it i will debate you on it see Catherine <laughs> holds see Catherine holds the history or the legacy of british slavery because i shit you not literally all british rich people made their money off of slavery i feel very strongly about this anyways he gets there and he's managing the plantations and being, you know, a shit human because he was a slave owner and uh, gets like trapped, scare quotes, because you're not an idiot, you're a grown ass man. He gets trapped into marrying this woman named Bertha Mason, who was like this really beautiful, rich heiress. But then after he's married, he realizes that she doesn't actually have any money and that her mother is crazy and that she is also crazy, according to him. Anyway, that's what he says. That's what he says, but we don't believe him because he's a piece of shit. Anyway, he goes back to Britain with Bertha and then locks her in his attic. <laughs> Spoiler Apparently, alert. Apparently, once she starts showing the signs of mental illness, that's too much for him and he can't handle it. And he just locks her in the attic. So much to say about this, but we're literally doing all of our character analysis, but make it fashion on Bertha Mason, so we will save that for later. Okay. Um, anyway, he then he like goes off and does stupid shit on the continent because he's a man and that's what he does and then he meets um jane who is the governess of his ward and by ward i mean illegitimate child because he did stupid shit on the continent and then he did whatever he, young british man does and sleeps with a french opera singer ugh, disgusting. those french opera singers <sighs> those <laughs> british young men of fortune Anyway, he falls in love with Jane um, and tries, like, he proposes to her and they're going to get married after, like, basically gaslighting her and so not basically, yes. absolutely Definitely. gaslighting and manipulating her and being generally abusive. And then they're going to get married and on the eve of their wedding, no, not even on the eve of their wedding, literally at the altar, Bertha Mason's your brother shows up and is like, you can't get married. You're already married to my sister and she's still alive. And then that's when Jane realizes that he uh, had a, his first wife locked up in the attic of Thornfield Hall. He kept telling her that it was just a servant who he pays to sit up there and sew. Yeah. He's ridiculous. Awful. And then she's like, dude, we can't get married. You're already married. And he's like, yeah, but you could be my mistress. And she's like, no, I'm not doing no, that. Thanks. Um, so she leaves him, and she then... She pieces the fuck out. Yes. And then she goes and, like, hooks up with her cousins, um, who... The ladies are nice, but her cousin, um, Sinjin Rivers is, like, repressed as fuck, and he wants to be a missionary, and he doesn't love her, but he tells her that it's her duty to marry him and go to India, um, with him, and she's like, no, I don't want to do that either, and then in this, like, weird dream, she, like, thinks that Rochester is calling her, so she goes back to Thornfield, but it's all burned down, and then she goes and she finds Rochester, and it turns out that Bertha um, burnt down Thornfield and 
Rochester tried to save her, but then he got, like, blinded and, like, all mangled and crippled because of it. And then, um, and then she marries him, and that's the end, and it's supposed to be a fucking happy ending, but it's bullshit. Are you saying that Rochester was burned by his own toxic masculinity? Absolutely, I am saying that. There, I want to unpack his toxic masculinity so much, but I only have a limited amount of time. So, I would like to focus on his reaction to Jane after he tells her that he has a first wife that he locked in the attic. But the okay. way he tells her about his first wife is also Yes, tell us terrible. about that. He says, um, Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family. Idiots and maniacs through three generations, with an exclamation mark. Her mother, the Creole, was born thoughts. a mad woman and a drunkard as I found out after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before. Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy that I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes. Oh, it was my experience was heavenly, if you only knew it. Um, and then, apparently, he decides that she has gone crazy. He just decides that. Sooner, he just, like, or, decides that. Like, it's happened now, and then locks her away, and then <sighs> thinks her... Being upset about being locked away is evidence of her further madness. Which is like, not. It's a, a definitely evidence of her sanity. Yeah, she's like s- screaming in the attic, upset about being trapped up there, and he decides that that's, you know, definitely because she's crazy and not because she's been trapped up there for at least three years. Okay, I have a lot to say about Bertha, but first we need to talk okay, about Rochester yes. Stark's Rochester. masculinity. Stay focused. Stay focused. Okay, so Jane, we're going to talk about her and her reaction to all of this, but first... When he's like, yes, I was planning on being a bigamist, but can you blame me? Which is literally his reaction. It's like, but can you blame me, though? I mean, look at her. She's not even cute. Um, And then he, like, Jane locks herself in her room for a day. And then finally goes out and is like, I need to talk to Rochester and figure out what the fuck happened. Right? And he is like trying to convince her that everything he did was entirely reasonable and justified and that he loves her so much that he Rochester loves Jane so much and he just wants to be with her and it's not his fault that he got saddled with this crazy woman when he was just a young man and like she should just be with him because like what does you know legal marriage even matter they're married in their souls and whatever and then She's like, no, I don't want to be your mistress. And he's like, Jane, will you hear reason? He stooped and approached his lips to my ear. Because if you won't, I'll try violence. His voice was hoarse. His look that of a man who was just about to burst an insufferable bond and plunge headlong into wild license. I saw that in another moment and with one impetus of frenzy more, I should be able to do nothing with him. Oh, okay, so wait. My what God. What does violence and license put together mean? He is literally threatening to rape her. That is something that the first, like, five times I read this novel, I did not read closely enough to understand how fucking problematic this scene is. But in this scene, he is telling her that unless she agrees to be his mistress, he is going to rape her and therefore make her unable to be with any other man um because he's going to take her 
mythical purity away, and then he, she will have to be his mistress because it will be the only way for her to survive. Okay, I have to tell you. I can't. Using but yes, using rape as a way to get someone to marry you is not like a new thing when this no. novel is written. I'm very sorry to say it's true. Um, about a hundred years before Samuel Richardson published a novel called Clarissa, in which the main dude rapes Clarissa and tries to get her to marry him. And even tw- 20 years before that, Eliza Haywood published Love and Excess, where s- there's actually, there's two pos- possible rape scenes. One, a man tries to rape a woman into becoming his wife. And two, a woman actually tries to be- become sexually assaulted so the man feels obligated to marry her. And it's it's a super problematic thing that's been happening for at least 120 years before Jane Eyre. And so he, him leaning down to threaten this, I, I mean, I don't know how I would cope if someone threatened this to me, but Jane placates, right? Yeah. She apologizes, essentially, and, like, tries to make him feel better so that she doesn't feel so threatened oh, in this moment when but, he's leaning down. But I, I have so many things to say about her reaction, so I guess we should just get into it. Because, like, you can't really talk about his toxic masculinity without talking about her masochism. Because it's so intense. So Jane's reaction to this is not... um, Sorry, I blinked for a second. Jane's reaction to his toxic masculinity and his threats of violence and his general, like, abusive behavior uh, isn't to, you know, understandably try to protect herself and placate him or to just, like, get really pissed off at him and leave. Although she does leave and she does placate him. It is, I think, a very telling thing that her reaction to his abuse is to feel bad about it and to blame herself for it. And to take responsibility for his awfulness onto herself. And at first I was going to just like, literally I had this change of heart in this exact moment because I was going to be like, it's so masochistic. Like I hate it so much. She's supposed to be the strong feminist character. Um, but actually like her behavior is really infuriating and problematic. But I literally, it just occurred to me that it's so, it feels really defensive to me. It's like she's protecting, but like it, I can't judge her as a victim of abuse for thinking for taking the responsibility for it because like that is a very normal reaction for victims of abuse. And so I just got a little soft-hearted for Jane. Um I'm going to read another quote cuz we love a good quote here. It's true. We um, do love textual evidence or receipts as the kids say. Uh yes. Isn't that what the kids say? I hope so it's when she I think it's I don't know. I don't know what the kids say these days. Um <laughs> This is when she first walks into the room to have this conversation with Rochester. And she says, Jane says, Reader, I forgave him at the moment and on the spot. There was such a deep remorse in his eye, such true pity in his tone, such manly energy in his manner. And besides, there was such unchanged love in his whole look and mean. I forgave him all, yet not in words, not outwardly, only in my heart's core. So she like already has forgiven him for all... She has already forgiven him for all of this bullshit. You and then, having, like, and then he threatens. Life. I I like, know. She just forgives him, which is mildly infuriating. More than mildly, I have many feelings. <laughs> we feel lots of infuriation. Um, well, hold on, I gotta get to the other page that I have to go here. Okay, so then he threatens to rape her, and then he's like, "Why are you mad at me?" 
don't you even love me? And she says, these words cut me. Yet what could I do or say? I ought probably to have done or said nothing. But I was so tortured by a sense of remorse at thus hurting his feelings. I could not control the wish to drop bomb where I had wounded. I'm literally about to explode here. So she is like, he is threatening to rape her. And then she's like, no, I don't want you to do that. And he's like, don't you even love me? And she's like, I do love you. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But also, please don't do that. I don't have, I, I literally don't have words anymore. I just, I can't process how, why did I think this was okay at any point in time in my life? Because you don't see that when you're in high school reading this for the first time with your 10th grade English teacher who gives you a quiz on the color of Jane Eyre's eyes. There was an actual quiz question from my 10th grade English teacher. The color of her eyes. Great. Um, Green. Green. She writes about it for a whole paragraph. Great. And so then I got a quiz question on the color of Jane Eyre's eyes. But that, this level of sophisticated analysis doesn't happen when you're 15 and 16 reading a book for the first time. Like that's not. I understand that. But at the same time, I'm like, it's so fucking obvious. It it's shouldn't so, even be. I know. It shouldn't even. It, it, this doesn't count as sophisticated analysis. Ugh, it's a lot. But and what did I, a tenth grader do? But then in college, even then, I read it the second time. Me too. Thinking, like, this is still romantic, even though it has some problematic parts. It and took me being, like, a full-grown adult woman in a healthy relationship to realize, like, none of this is Nobody okay. Nobody to be gaslighted, and you shouldn't be doing it. If you're the gaslighting type, then please... Don't. <laughs> don't. Just don't. don't. Don't do it. Can we please talk about Bertha Mason, though? Okay. Let's move on to segment three. Character, Character. analysis, but make it hashtag fashion. Okay. I mean, uh, like, this is just a rant episode, to be honest. Because, so like, this, this book gives me so many feelings. And well, I feel like at this point we've read it enough that we can, like, that's all there is, is rants. Yeah. <laughs> there isn't any more. We have, <laughs> That's all we've, we've progressed to the, like, what, fourth or fifth stage of anger? Like, it's just ranting at this point. Okay. So, Bertha Mason. Bertha Mason is, of course, the famous attic wife. Um, she is the daughter of a Creole family. Creole, back in the 19th, 18th and 19th century, just meant um, Caribbean and like live yes like basically colonial um but there has been some scholarship some pretty convincing scholarship of reading Bertha Mason's as of mixed race and I tend to agree with that scholarship because I think that actually there's an incredible amount of textual evidence within Jane Eyre the novel to suggest that whether or not her parentage is actually mixed. Bertha Mason is being racialized as non-white within this novel. It certainly fits with her treatment. Yes. Right? Because she's locked away. First, she's gaslighted and treated as if she were insane or had a mental illness. And second, as a result of that, or perhaps as a, you know, that was used as a impetus, is locked away in an attic. And then third, is treated very violently. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the descriptions of her physically are, are definitely racialized as well. Mm. Um, I'm going to read one description of uh, what Jane thinks is a ghost or an apparition, but is actually Bertha. And these are Jane's words. 
Beautiful and ghastly to me. Oh, sir, I never saw a face like it. It was a discolored face. It was a savage face. Remember when we said anything described as savage or primitive was definitely racist? Here we go again. I wish I could forget the roll of the red eyes and the fearful blackened inflation of the lineaments. Ghosts are pale, Jane. This, sir, was purple. The lips were swelled and dark. The brow furrowed. The black eyebrows widely raised over the bloodshot eyes. Shall I tell you what it reminded me of? And then she says it looked like a vampire. Okay, so here's the thing. Every single time that Bertha Mason is described physically, she's described as savage, animalistic. She's crawling on the ground. She's dark. She's a large woman. There's nothing dainty about her. She's a very imposing large woman. She has dark hair. She has thick lips. She has prominent brows. Like Jane calls her purple purple she's so unusual that she doesn't even have a vocabulary to be able to describe what she saw she resorts to the color purple so i would say that there's a lot of textual evidence to suggest that whether or not she's actually um mixed race she's definitely being racialized as such Mm -hmm. uh other things that are really important to note about uh rochester's description of bertha mason then Rochester's description of Bertha Mason's history is that she's described as very passionate, as very physical. Um, He implies that the reason he fell out of love with her was because she was promiscuous. Although, again, we only have his word for that. And as we've seen, his word is bullshit because he literally lies about everything. Um, She has a lot of strong feelings. And there is another point that I'm not even going to go find the quote because it pisses me off too much, where he's like, I decided she was crazy because she doesn't like the same things I like, and I don't enjoy talking to her. Well, that's definitely what I wish everyone decided they were crazy on. Yeah. That's sarcasm. I don't he's, actually wish he's like He's like, we have nothing in common. She's crazy. I'm going to lock her in my attic. Sure. And then... logical. Yeah. So then she is, like, locked in the attic, clearly upset about this, as any reasonable person would be. She tries to get out. She has a, a, some serious beef with her husband, Rochester. I, mean, I think I would, too. Absolutely understandable. So she, there's a part earlier where um, it's actually where Jane thinks that she sees this ghost. Bertha tries to burn Rochester in his bed, which is, again, a completely understandable reaction to have to the man who has locked you in an attic for, like, 15 years. And... Um, one, she doesn't light him on fire. She lights his bed curtains on fire. So it seems pretty smart to me. She could have gotten away with it if it wasn't for fucking Jane. And <laughs> um, another thing to note is that she is never violent with anybody else in the house. Mm-mm, no. she's only She only ever is violent against Rochester and her brother. Yeah, um, and kind of let this happen to her. Yeah. Not, not didn't kind of let this happen to her, but, like, manipulated the entire situation in mm-hmm. order to get her married to Rochester in the first place and then help Rochester cover it up. Yep. So it seems to me like she's actually... When he comes to visit, she, like, attacks both of them. She and, bites him. Yeah. She bites people. She rips curtains. She, she's yelling. And Jane is terrified. I mean... A little bit. I can understand. I can understand being afraid, but I also can completely understand Bertha Mason's reaction. Yeah, I mean, I'd be mad, too. We get locked in an attic by your strange new husband of only a couple of years and... Months, possibly. Months, possibly. He never says. Um, and it really... 
Okay, so I could talk about this literally forever, but I can't because we have a limited amount of time. My final points, because this has been talked about to death in literary criticism. Mm. I would like to say that I do not excuse Jane Eyre or Charlotte Bronte for the overt racism against Bertha Mason for two reasons. It is not only Rochester who is racist against Bertha, but rather Jane herself, and that and Jane is the narrator. This is a first-person novel. And there is no textual evidence that she sees Bertha as anything other than a primitive, animalistic, racialized other. I don't I don't see any way to really excuse Charlotte Bronte from being racist. No, but but this novel is much more um, autobiographical than a lot of her other well no but Villette is the most autobiographical. But but the whole even the whole school scene where Jane's at school at Lowood mm-hmm. um, is a is a family story about a sister who has died who died in a boarding school like Lowood, um, where they didn't take care of the kids that were at the boarding school. And I, although I don't have any evidence to support that Charlotte Bronte knew a man who had an attic wife, I feel like since this one has so many autobiographical elements in it, that this must be something in her, yeah, uh, I don't know. in her imagination. It's definitely in her imagination. Um, but like, I'm going to throw down the gauntlet. And I'm going to say, I love this book. I've read it a lot of times, and I enjoy reading it every single time. But this book is racist. Uh, very racist. Totally. It's not like it just has racist stuff in it. No. No, this book is racist. Agreed. Agree. Charlotte Bronte was not doing the right thing. It's, this is, and it's not accidentally racist. It's just feel-out-out racist. Mm-hmm. I said it. called it. I called Jane Eyre racist. I did it on a podcast. On a podcast. Other people are going to hear this and say... No, she's not. I'm ready for the battle in the Twitter sphere. We're so ready. We have receipts, don't worry. All right. I mean, listen, I read this for my (laughs) PhD exams, and I have extensive, extensive (laughs) evidence to support my argument. So add me if you want to. Um, All right. Segment four. Let's give it a final grade real quick. Wrap it up. I have no fucking clue. I have no idea what to get. I mean... Probably, probably like a B plus because it's still, I don't know why I still have a soft spot for this book, but I do. Even knowing how terrible it is and how problematic their relationship is, somehow I still have a soft spot for Janer. God, I feel the same. But I, it's just so damn racist that even though I like this book a lot as a read, I'm only going to be able to give it like a, like a C, like a 75. Oh no! See, and all of the points are for just like sheer enjoyment because content wise, it is messed up. I'd give it an F content wise. Oh no, dang, I, I know it's harsh, but it's like really, really fucked up. It is, it is. All right, all right, we don't feel good about that, but Mm-mm. we never do feel good about anything related to Jane Eyre anymore. Do you remember those blessed days when we thought it was just a romantic story? Oh, to be 15 again, oh, to be 15 again. I would never want <laughs> no, to go I don't there. Want to do that. Don't go back. There's that. Many thanks to you all for listening and drinking with us today. Uh, Hopefully, Ellis will be back with us and drinking and being funny with us soon. And you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at PHDrunkPodcast. 
hopefully to tell Ellis that she needs to come back. Mm-hmm. You can also go over to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash phdrunkpodcast, and you can buy us a drink so that we can keep drowning our existential despair and talking shit about Mr. Rochester and other people doing racist stuff. Yes, we're very good at that. That's literally our brand. Um, thanks, as always, to Anchor for helping us make this podcast a thing, even though we are technologically challenged. That's it for us, gentles. Books down, bottoms up.